Again, welcome. So glad that you made it um, for week one of Advent. This will be a four-week series as we anticipate the birth of Jesus. So let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, being who you are, being the creator God who is also cares about us and is concerned about what is happening here in our lives. And we thank you for sending Jesus. And Lord, again, we long for more uh, than just like a retelling of the nativity story. We long for you to demonstrate to us how that story continues to have power in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I think it's fair to say that most of us were hoping that it would be like 15 degrees colder or like 15 degrees warmer. So at least if it were colder, we'd be getting a lot of snow. I heard that they had to, did they have to close the mountain this morning because of all the rain up there? I think that's, yeah, I'm getting a few nods. That's unfortunate. But you know what? Jesus is still uh, breaking in on the earth. There's still a lot to hope in. That was a passive-aggressive pastor comment. I apologize. Take that back. It's not how I meant it. It came out that way, but that's not how I meant it. So um, uh, this year for the Advent uh, series, what we're going to be doing is going line by line through the nativity story in the Gospel of Luke. And up for today, the first theme of Advent, represented by the first purple candle here that is now lit, is the theme of hope. The theme of hope. Now, uh, my kids are doing this really kind of cute thing. I use that word loosely because it's also, depending on how I'm feeling, could be also annoying. Isabel, my daughter, is 11. Judah, my son, is 6. And uh, like most of us do, if you're parents, you have them write down, you know, what's on their Christmas list, what they would like to get for Christmas. We did that several weeks ago, and now my kids are like coming back into our bedroom, finding their list, and adding a bunch of stuff to it. Right, because they keep thinking of like new stuff that, that the algorithms honestly are pushing on them. That's what it really is. My daughter's like, "Can I get an Apple pencil and an iPad?" I'm like, "Do you forget we have screen time rules? Like this is nuts." Um, like 20 other things, they just keep on adding. So yesterday, uh, we were driving in the car talking uh, about Christmas gifts again. It's a common theme in the house right now. So, anyways, we're talking about their Christmas gifts again, and like any sensible, loving dad. I said to them, don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up, right? Why? Because my Christmas gift buying power does not equal the hope-filled expectation in my son's heart. It's just nowhere close. So in reality, here's what's going to happen. In reality, uh, what's going to happen is each of my children will get four, maybe five good gifts. One kind of big present that was on their list, and then the rest of the stuff off Facebook Marketplace. Thank God for like lightly used secondhand stuff. Am I right? Like, that's amazing. Uh, and then, of course, we'll throw in a stocking full of candy that we immediately regret giving them. And that's just basically our Christmas. But that's not what's in their head. Like, what, that's not what they're picturing. What they're picturing is that scene at the end of Home Alone 2, you know, in, in, in the Plaza Hotel and that like presidential suite where there's like hundreds of presents immaculately wrapped under a 20-foot tree. That's what they have in their minds. So since I'm a loving father who wants my kids to have an amazing Christmas on planet Earth, I tell them not to get your hopes up about all the stuff that you're asking for, otherwise you're gonna be really disappointed. So week one of Advent 
is about paying attention to the things that we're tempted to put our hope in that will ultimately disappoint us and choosing instead to anchor our hope in the promise of Jesus' birth. And it's nothing like the commercial holiday. Let me be clear. It's not like the dopamine hit that you get from biting into your favorite Christmas cookie or the shot of nostalgia you get while listening to Mariah Carey or the shopping or the decorating or the movie marathon. And to be clear, I'm into all that stuff way more than I used to be, minus Mariah Carey. I still can't get into her. <laughs> but, but, I'm, but I'm like into that stuff. But Advent is like the opposite of our culture's like hysteria of whipping ourselves up into the Christmas spirit. It's the opposite of that. It is patiently waiting and turning our longings towards the hope that Christ has come. The true Savior and King of the world is here. So where you and I choose to anchor our hope will directly correlate with your longings being met or unmet and the joy that we experience in God's presence. So like the goal of our teachings and our worship and the Advent cards that we're handing out this year, the goals of these things are to awaken us to the wonder of Christmas, to sit in and to feel the full weight of what's happening in Bethlehem. And to be clear, the story hasn't changed one bit this year over last year. I know that there are some of us who are kind of like, can't we give like the nativity scene like a reboot or something? Seems to be all the rage in our culture. But it's still this story about a manger and shepherds and wise men riding in on donkeys. Listen, we do not have like a new spin on the Christmas story for you this year. What we have is something that's been given to us, a story, an ancient, sacred story that when you're really paying attention can handle the full weight of your hope-filled expectations and satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And our passage today that we read a moment ago is Mary's Magnificat from Luke chapter 1. Uh, for us to feel like the real full weight and glory of this passage, I need to give you a bit of the biblical background and history, which I promise is super interesting, or at least it is to me. So here we go. Uh, imagine for a moment with me that you're Mary, okay? Like the moms in the room can imagine that way better than the rest of us. But let's just imagine you're her. And you just received the best news of your life. An angel appeared in your living room and announced that you're going to have a son who will be the promised son of God, Jesus the Messiah. And I'd imagine you'd be filled with so many different emotions. You'd have butterflies and be excited and grateful to God. You'd also probably be nervous, probably at least a little bit afraid about what everyone must think. Listen, the immaculate conception explanation would have been a hard sell to Joseph and to the rest of their community. It would have been almost impossible, I would imagine, to deal with, process all of those emotions that Mary must have been feeling. So how would have you responded to that? How does Mary respond? Well, Mary responds by writing and singing a song. It's kind of hipster when you think about it, really, right? I picture her with like a beanie and a moleskin and like organic matcha, like scribbling out her lyrics to this song. Uh, I thought that was good. You guys didn't give me anything on that. I mean, that was like layered millennial critique in the Pacific. I feel like that was on point. It's a really good song, too. The, the, the Magnificat, is, it inspired Bach in the 18th century, Vivaldi in the 19th century, to write their own versions of, the, of, of this song. And so I want to like look at it one more time and, and try and pull out as many observations 
uh, at, that we can in, in the next few moments. So here's uh, what it says, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has filled or lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That's so good. So I was joking a minute ago, but seriously, this is an incredible song. Mary may be like an uneducated peasant girl from a small farming town in the north of Israel, but she has radical faith. She is on like the short list of courageous people in the Bible without a doubt. She's also really creative. She's writing music and composing poetry. She's also part theologian. This song is like filled with biblical imagery. And she's also singing out her heart to God in full praise. So in my mind, this makes Mary one of the heroes of this story, uh, no question. In fact, a little known fact about Mary is that she is one of at least three prophetic female songwriters in the story of the scriptures. That's a good trivia for those of you who are into that kind of thing. Uh, here, here you go. Here's the, here's the three. First, we have uh, Miriam, who's Moses' sister. And in Exodus chapter 15, after Israel passes through the Red Sea, she and Moses stop everyone, and they sing this new song of praise to God for saving them. The second female prophetic songwriter is Hannah. And Hannah, after years of infertility, she finally gets pregnant and gives birth to Samuel, who goes on to become like the great prophet judge of Israel. And as she's dedicating him to the Lord in the tabernacle, excuse me, the, the temple, in 1 Samuel 2, she sings a song to the Lord. And then uh, there's also Mary here in Luke 1 who actually makes this connection for us. She's the one who kind of puts all the pieces together for us. She's alluding to both Miriam and to Hannah in her song about Jesus, which I think is another kind of level of intrigue to this whole thing. So the first thing that we're meant to see is that there are these really critical moments in the story of God's redemption. And in those critical moments, he is raising up these women who are courageous enough to believe God at his word and who sing God's promises over his people by faith. This is, prof I think it's profound, and uh, we'll see as we go along here. And in Mary's case, that song has now become a part of the worship of the church ever since. I don't know if you're excited enough about how cool this is right now, but, rat like, I mean, this is good. This is really good. Yes, oh my gosh, see, Stephanie's amped along with me. That's great, okay. So we're going to take this a couple lines at a time and, and look at the message that's underneath, right? So my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. So this is essentially Mary saying, every fabric of my being worships God right now. My soul and my spirit glorify God. 
This is, by the way, the correct response to uh, the goodness of God and God's faithful love. This is what the Bible calls praise, and we do it here every single week. We just finished uh, a session of praise and worship, and there's good reason for that. It's one of the many different ways that we tell God that he's been good to us and thank him for being good to us, and here in a few minutes, we're going to conclude the gathering in the exact same way that we started, by giving God praise and worship. And, there's, and I love that worship and praise is sung because it's a creative, uh, it's a creative medium and anthem, uh, and so there's, there's so much to that. Next in verse 47, we notice that Mary uses the title, God my Savior. He says, God my Savior, which for me is a very interesting word choice. It's clearly a messianic word. So um, in the story here, Gabriel has just revealed to Mary that she's going to be giving birth to the Messiah. So this is the kind of paradox that's happening here. Mary will be carrying in her womb and then delivering and nursing and taking care of the exact one who she is praising. So eventually her offspring will end up saving her. Uh, and it's this beautiful poetic sort of thing that's going on here. And by the way, it is not lost. It is not lost on Mary. Now, those of you who know me, speaking of Christmas songs, most of you know I have a bone to pick with a lot of Christmas songs uh, in the world today, particularly that 90s song, Mary Did You Know, okay? I'm sorry. I just can't get with it. It's like, it's so cringy to me. There's, I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, and it's like one of your favorites, or you wrote the song or something. It's just, (laughs) Nico's walking out on me. He's like, that's his song. If you haven't heard it, if you haven't heard it, it's just not that good of a song. I distinctly remember hearing it when I was a little kid in our church, and I remember this person getting up on stage and very dramatically singing the song, and if you don't know, it goes something like, you know, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day, you know, on and on the story or the song goes. And I remember being a young child and listening to that and going, haven't they read Luke 1? That's the whole point. Of course she gets it. Of course. Actually, that's the whole point of the narrative is that she knows what's happening because she has advanced notice from Gabriel and it's everyone else who doesn't know what's going on. So Mary knew it's the, the people who wrote the song didn't know what was going on. You can tell I've, I've, like, this is something that I have to deal with in therapy, which is why I'm in therapy. There's other things higher on the list in therapy, but that's on there. That's for sure on it. So she's experiencing uh, this paradox of the incarnation, creator God becoming human in a deep and visceral way, in a way that n- none of us can really understand. If, G- if Jesus was anything like our kids, Jesus was probably kicking Mary's bladder and, you know, causing morning sickness and all of the other joys of pregnancy. So Mary is feeling in a deep, visceral way the the paradox of God becoming human. One of the reasons why I'm convinced we sometimes miss the glory and scandal of Christmas is that the Messiah, holy is his name, to quote Mary, has arrived in the most humble form imaginable. And instead of exalting himself, he takes on the form of a servant. And we see that, we're going to continue to see that as we go through the Luke narrative here, which is about the furthest thing that anyone would expect from the king. And we're going to see just how upside down this is, and this reality is for the rest uh, of the gospel narratives. Um, But I want us to think just very briefly about this. Like our society is looking for a savior, it's looking for someone 
to come who's maybe like an influencer or a political hero of some kind. But he, like Jesus, when he comes, he doesn't meet that cultural expectation. He's coming to us as a humble peasant who becomes the king of the world, and he does that through his servant uh, like messianic vocation by eventually going to the cross. So in these first few lyrics, Mary is highlighting that. She's also thanking God personally for her privilege of being the mother of the king. And she recognizes that in centuries to come, people will remember and celebrate her story as a part of the divine plan uh, to redeem the world. And she was so right about that. Like, we're still talking about her today. Think about how much has changed in the world over the last 2,000 years. Right? We've launched a telescope into space that we'll see to the end of the cosmos. Right? We've like, learned how to do calculus. We figured out how to brew artisanal coffee. But we're still talking about Mary and her story because she has a lot of influence today. She's still, her story matters. It's a part of the story of the king. In the second part of her song, though, Mary is praising God for what she believes her son will mean for the rest of the world and not just her. So here's what I mean by that. Mary is suggesting that there's going to be this reversal of her own social status from being a peasant teenager to the mother of the king. That points to a larger, greater, more significant upheaval that is still to come. So let's keep reading, and let me show you what I mean by that. Verse 50, it says this, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, has sent the rich away empty. What I love about this, there's a couple things to notice between the lines, really, of Scripture here, um, in, in, in between the lyrics. The, the first thing that, that uh, Mary must have been inferring from, from what she's saying here is she's addressing like the corrupt powers in her cultural moment. So think about this. This is year zero. Of course, they weren't calling it year zero at the time. So they're still rolling by the Roman calendar. And it wasn't until much later that society chose Jesus' birth, the story of Christmas, the one we're talking about right now, as the event by which to measure all other events in history from, from, which is insane. Kind of besides the point for today's talk. This is year zero. And there were two rulers that mattered in Mary's world at the time. There was Caesar Augustus and Herod. Most of you guys are probably already familiar, but let me give you just like the tiniest little bit of history. Caesar Augustus was a military strategist. He rose to power through conquest, you know, like he was a, he was a violent um, uh, con- conquistador of his own right. And as you know, Roman emperors were notoriously totalitarian. But Augustus took it to like a whole nother level of megalomania. Like um, he was, he was uh, insistent that they called him the son of God. In fact, that's exactly what it says on the Roman currency from the time. He had the Roman currency imprinted with, uh, with this, his mug, and then the inscription, the son of God. By the way, you can still pick these up on eBay. They're like 400 bucks, depending on the, you know quality of it. So it's one thing to be called one of the gods after you're dead, as was the case with most Roman royalty. That's just what they did with Roman emperors. But Augustus was like, no, I want to be known now as the son of God. I want you guys to all call me the son 
of God. This is another level of megalomania, right? And he's like a, a, a bloody, brutal road to the top of becoming the emperor. But once he became Caesar, instead of wiping nations off the map, Augustus was much more interested in just building his empire. So he would, what he would do is grab the immensely powerful empire that he had, the army, and then he would mount up against rival nations like Israel, for example. He would flex his muscles just a little bit. That was all that it took. Make sure everyone knew who the dominant power was. And then he would offer, quote, peace. And the peace that he would offer would look something like this. All you have to do is pay really high taxes, follow Roman law, uh, put up with my governors, kiss my ring, essentially, and that is exactly Israel's situation. They're in this sort of quasi-peace with Rome because Rome's like, stay in line and pay the taxes. And then, also in year zero, the Roman governor in Judea was a part Jewish, well-connected friend of Caesar's family, a guy who called himself Herod the Great. Sounds like a nice gentleman, right? Probably not. I wouldn't want to see his Twitter feed. Good thing they didn't have it back then. He also happened to be one of the wealthiest humans in the history of the planet. He was known for his opulence. He was known for his incredible building projects. He built these massive granite and uh, marble structures that were hand-hewn and, and, and transported uh, by boat. He wanted the biggest port in the world, and so he had it built. He wanted a palace in the desert, and so he built it. And you can still go and visit these ruins today. There was absolutely staggering amounts of luxury and opulence. He was also known for having a bunch of wives, sadly, treating them like property. He had hundreds of kids, and uh, history tells us that he murdered many of them because of his insecurity. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we learned that when the Magi come through Jerusalem looking for Jesus, who they described as the king of the Jews, made, it made Herod super insecure and filled with rage. And so he orders that all of the boys in Nazareth, two years old and younger, are to be killed. Right? This is unheard, like unbelievable levels of tyranny at its absolute worst. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, historian and, and uh, theologian, writes this. At the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man around that he kills a whole village of other babies in order to try and get rid of him. Within a generation, his followers will be persecuted by the empire as a danger to good order. Whatever else you say about Jesus, from his birth onwards, people certainly found him a threat. He upset their power games and suffered the usual fate of people who do that. So... In Mary's world, the two people who kind of controlled those power games were the so-called son of God emperor and the genocidal puppet king, Herod the Great. And the injustice that, was at, that, that Mary and her family was on the receiving end of was just like beyond description. Mary's family was gutted by taxes. They had one big cut going to Caesar to build his empire, another big cut going to Herod to fund his lifestyle. And then there was another cut that went to the corrupt tax collector. So in her heart, Mary's allegiance was to Yahweh, but Caesar is there making her kiss his ring and call him Lord. So you sense the drama that Mary is being drawn into and pulled into and in which this song is being written. So it's into that story of displacement and brutality and tyranny that Mary sings a melody of hope over that entire situation. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. So in other words, this is like the opposite 
of Mary having an anxious breakdown, which given her situation and given what she was living in, we would all understand it if she was having some kind of a nervous break. But instead, we see the opposite of what we might expect. She's singing into that cultural story a profound song of worship and trust in God, and she's singing this melody of hope. So there's more to it that we don't have time for. There's like a really kind of interesting eschatological ring to these lyrics. She's borrowing her words from Hebrew prophecy about God's future reign of shalom or peace. Um, and this specifically coming from a section of scripture uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there now. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, it'll just be on the screen behind you. And again, this will go relatively quick, but as you're turning there, 2 Samuel is about the reign of King David, about a thousand or so years prior to Jesus, and it's at the height of what church historians or uh, biblical historians would call the united monarchy. So if you're new to the story of the Bible, um, this is when David is king, and when he becomes king, he goes on like this military winning streak. He's like 7-0, and and at the time, Jerusalem was enemy-occupied and conquered by the Jebusites. They were super cocky about it. But David rolls back into Jerusalem and reclaims it back for the people of God and the people of Israel. So by chapter 6, David has taken up residence in Jerusalem, the holy city, and he's brought the ark of God's presence back to the place where it ought to be. So it's, again, stark contrast to Mary's day. This is like the high mark of the story of God's people to this point. And it's so good, in fact, the Bible tells us that things are getting kind of rowdy in Jerusalem where David is dancing with all of his might uh, before the Lord along the streets of Jerusalem to the shouts and to the songs of the people. So again, things are getting kind of wild in Jerusalem. And then things are actually getting even better than that because here's what happens next. King David receives a prophecy from God through the prophet Nathan. And this is what the scripture says. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son, and my love will never be taken away from him so beautiful. God is promising David that a son from his lineage would be the Messiah. And this is something you're probably already mostly aware of if you've been coming to church any length of time. I want you to fast forward again. Imagine you are Mary. A thousand years later, wicked people are oppressing them. They are enemy occupied by the Romans. They are not living the promise that God had made a thousand years prior. Caesar is claiming the title that God says David's son will have. And then, when almost no one is paying attention in this little house in Nazareth, Gabriel appears to Mary and says, your son will sit on his father David's throne. So really long story short, God's making good on his promise. God is making good on his promise to bring the long-awaited reign of peace through Mary's womb. I want you to think about the staggering faith that it requires to sing that kind of melody of hope in the face of this kind of tyranny. She's 
pulling these themes from 2 Samuel about subverting the kingdom of darkness and throwing down the corrupt powers into her, le- uh, into her lyrics. On top of that, she's also sort of riffing on the Davidic covenant a bit in that um, in the Davidic covenant, God says, I will 12 times. And then in her song, she declares he has seven times. So for example, in the, the covenant to David, he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. In Mary's song, he has brought down the rulers from their thrones. In the Davidic covenant, I will raise up your offspring. In Mary's song, he has lifted up the humble. So God is saying, I will do this. Mary says, in the face of tyranny, he has done it. He has done it. So again, if you have eyes to see, in year zero, man, there is a new high mark in the story of God's redemption. God is becoming human in the person of Jesus, and then God is also raising up Messiah's mother as a prophetess to sing about it. I love this stuff. This is so good. So before we move on to singing our songs, I want you to pay attention to the reality. You and I, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and see that Herod the Great died of a painful STD in the lap of luxury. We can also see that Rome famously fell in AD 476. So it is a very nice, neat, clean idea for us to take God at his word about these promises. But when Mary, when she was praising God's faithfulness and goodness, every fiber of my being glorifies the Lord, man, Rome was at the height of its power. And Mary is actively hoping in God's victory by faith. Mary is hoping in God's victory by faith. She's singing, raising a shout of praise to Yahweh about, prophecy, about promises that have not been fulfilled yet, but she's singing about them in the past tense. He has done this. He has brought down rulers. He has raised up the humble. He has filled us with good things. Now, if I could just be perfectly plain with you guys, sometimes I feel like we have a hard time praising God when he's already fulfilled the promises that we're reading about and singing about. But Mary is trusting, by contrast, she is trusting when God says it's going to happen, then it means it's as good as done. What God has promised, he is able also to perform. So when God looks down on us, will he find this kind of faith in our hearts? Yes, we have seen, we believe that Jesus has come and that we are saved because we trust in him and follow his way. Do we also believe that he's coming again? And are are we aiming our life? In that trajectory where we're like, you know what, this is the stop, the, the little dot on the line, but the line is eternity, and we're living for that line of eternity, which is a line I just got from my mentor literally 20 minutes before this gathering started. Are we living into this promise that Jesus is coming again, and will God be able to look down on us and see that same kind of faith? Bach and Vivaldi, as I mentioned a moment ago, were commissioned by the church to compose their versions of Mary's song in the 18th and 19th century, and they are these big classical concertos, but when Mary was singing this song, like writing it down in her moleskin or whatever, like I said a minute ago, you still don't like that joke. That was such a good joke. I'm not, not cool with that. I'm just kidding. Oh, man. Oh, that's great. You know, you know, like a little window into the life of a pastor, you write something down, and you're like, oh, they're going to love it when I say that. And then when you don't, it's like, that's, it's cool. I'll just go back to making fun of myself, and you guys will love that. Because <laughs> that's the type of humor that always works. It's self-deprecating. I don't know why that is. 
Anyways, what were we talking about? Oh, Mary. Uh, and so uh, when, when she is writing this song, it, it's, it, it's, it's not being commissioned by the church or anything like that. It's just her and her cousin, Elizabeth. And when she wrote this song, she was at her cousin's house a couple of miles from Herod's palace. And she was singing about the day when that palace will come crumbling to the ground. The, and the way that the hills of the Judean hillside are laid out geographically, scholars tell us that she would likely be able to see Herod's palace off in the distance. So I'm just picturing her and Elizabeth standing there, arms outstretched towards the pompous Herodian architecture, which to them represented the corrupt religious establishment, praying, God, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth as in heaven. I love this. Do you love this? Think about it. At the height of Rome's power, an unknown girl from Nazareth is singing this melody of hope over herself and the people of God while the greatest authority in the universe is growing in her womb. And he's the one who is subverting the kingdom of darkness. See, like the only hope that Mary had was that a greater authority was coming that could overthrow the kingdom of darkness and the corrupt powers. Now, I don't know how we got from that, like hoping in God's deliverance by faith to singing about how the weather outside is frightful. I don't know how we go from one to the other. And by the way, have you noticed that every year there's like another song singing about the weather that we're supposed to get into? Maybe it's cold outside or whatever, which I understand that song is like, Maybe not, not okay anymore, which for obvious reasons. Um, another sermon, yeah, that's not for now. I don't know how we got from there to here. I don't know, but I, I know that we can't get into it. And think about it from Mary's perspective. Man, singing about the weather, offering kind wishes to, in the face of tyranny, that just wouldn't cut it, would it? In the face of tyranny, your only hope is that a greater authority is coming. And that greater authority is going to establish his reign of peace. And by the way, friends, that is the story of Advent, is that that greater authority has arrived and is here. And it's actually coming through her womb. Again, beautiful, poetic uh, story here. So Jesus' kingdom, it's Jesus' kingdom that will bring down the ruler of this world and bring him down to his knees. And he is the one who is turning the whole world order upside down. Now, we're living in a completely different time than Mary, obviously, and we don't face anything remotely close to the tyranny that she experienced, but we're living in this culture that is trying to convince you to just whip up the Christmas spirit every time this year. And in my conversations with you, I just think that it's not doing it anymore for us either. The Christmas blues, by the way, are a real thing documented by social scientists and, and psychologists. It's the Christmas blues, right? You get to the first week of January, and you're just back to the same feelings you had before the Christmas season. Anxiety, fear, maybe chronic lack of hope. And because Christmas in our culture is like that, it's, it's, it's becoming like just another escapist activity, which is my sign of summary uh, critique of, of our culture and how we deal with negative emotions and things that are troubling us, is we just do escapism. That's what we know how to do. Think about it like this. Consuming chocolate, it will create dopamine release in your brain. It will do that. Opening gifts on Christmas morning, they will give you a jolt of gratitude and happiness. 
Watching those movies again will stir up a sense of nostalgia because the Grinch's heart did grow three sizes that year. Or, you know, Will Ferrell did save Christmas and get the girl in the end or whatever the case may be. But the, the dopamine from the chocolate will eventually wear off. Cal- calories won't. They're, they're around to stay, but the, the, the dopamine wears off in a few hours. See, these escapist activities are just about putting aside the angst that we feel, the underlying lack of hope that we sometimes experience as humans. See, forgetting your problems via nostalgia cannot change your life if you're gripped by fear. Forgetting your problems via nostalgia cannot change your heart if it's filled with grief. It cannot save your soul if you're enslaved to sin. See, the story of Christmas is not about putting aside your problems for a minute in order to escape. It's actually about the exact opposite of that. It's a prophetic expectation. It's about anchoring your hope in a story that actually does not disappoint. It's about hoping in something that will never disappoint you, and that is, of course, the person of Jesus. See, the hope of Christmas does not mean that all your problems disappear, wave of a magic wand, global violence, wars going on across the world, including Israel and Gaza right now. The things that my kids want for Christmas, there's, no, there's nothing we can do so they get everything on their Christmas list or whatever, right? But what we are being given instead is that we have this hope-filled vision that through my problems, through everything that I'm facing in my life, God is coming close to me by showing up, being coming incarnate in the broken world, and he is making all things new. This is the hope of Christmas. So the question is, will you and I, will we have the courage? Will we have the courage to be like Mary, to sing a melody of hope? feels risky, singing a melody of hope if you're Mary. But because she was convinced in her heart and trusted Yahweh at his word, she sung that melody of hope. Will we have the courage to sing like Mary sung, declaring God's victory by faith? That when God has said he's going to do something, it's as good as done. See, singing praise is a part of our prophetic vocation as Christians. We're singing aloud to the goodness of God, and we're telling God that we're grateful and we're thankful, but we're also letting our neighbors know that the king is here. And this is how we orient our life. And this is the invitation for us to respond, is to praise the Lord. Let every fabric of your being glorify the, God, glorify the Lord and confess with your mouth, holy is your name. Here's the last reflection before we come to the tables. Just imagine, again, you're Mary. And imagine like all the sen- sensible people in Mary's life who would have been really concerned for her. Listen, we're happy you think you saw an angel. And well done, like you wrote a good song. Like that was theologically rich, really creatively done, well done. But don't bet your life on the promise that you think you heard. Don't believe that. It's too risky to get your hopes up on what you think God said to you. But aren't you so glad that that's not at all? how Mary responded to her situation. But instead, she hoped against hope that what God had promised, she believed that he was able also to perform and that he would, in fact, do it. And she bet her life on that reality. Her singing that song 
is betting her life on the kingdom of God breaking in. And when we give our lives to Christ, we're doing the exact same thing. We are betting our lives on the kingdom of God. And as we do that, we're living into the scandal of the Christmas story. We're following Jesus' lead to lead, the, lead this life of humility and sacrificial service and for the good of everyone else. And we're doing it for someone else's glory. That's what it means for you and I to follow Jesus and bet our lives on his kingdom is to live not for our own glory, but for the king's glory. And I think, I think, if I'm, we're reading this right, I think what it's trying to tell us is that God will make good on his promise. He will exalt the humble. He, it will be worth it in the end. Hope in him will not disappoint. Like Mary, like David, we get to be a part of this beautiful unfolding drama where God ultimately wins and gets his way. The kingdom of God has arrived at long last. That's the hope of Christmas. So if you were like in living at the time of year zero and you were a betting person, at, in year zero, would you put the odds on the outcome of Herod's kingdom, Caesar's kingdom, or Mary's kingdom? Which one do you think would have won out? Well, if you just look at the facts, and you were honest, in, in year zero, man, like 99.9% of people would have put their money on Caesar without hesitation. But they would have been dead wrong. Colosseum's in ruins. You can buy that dude's coin on eBay, but that's about all that's left of him. But there are billions of people around the planet right now who are giving praise to King Jesus. And you are an example of that. Halfway across the world from Elizabeth's house in the Judean hillside, we are giving glory and honor and praise to him. Whose kingdom is worth following? Well, it's King Jesus. So will you be one of those courageous ones? Maybe what some of in our world might call foolish ones. Putting our hope in and trusting in what we cannot see, but we believe that God said he will do. His kingdom is coming with power. Let's declare his victory by faith. There's this little tiny book in, buried in the prophets. Uh, it's a book called Lamentations. And it's, it's a book exactly what it sounds like. It's just a big lament. It's crying out to God about why, if you've promised all of this good, why is there so much evil, right? It's a good, healthy, important book for us to look at. And it's, it's deep, and there's lots of those kinds of things. It's three chapters long, and the whole thing is complaint to God about all kinds of different things. And then at the very end of that writing is this revelation. Yet this I call to mind in the face of everything. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is it. This is the hope of Christmas that we are anchoring ourselves to. Is that the commercial holiday can come and go. We'll celebrate it. We'll tear open the gifts. I'll eat the Christmas cookies. You can make them for me. I'll eat them. <laughs> but our, tr our hope, our, when the dopamine wears, like our hope, we are anchoring our hope in King Jesus. And will we 
cry out? Will we sing out? Will we give praise to God for the hope that is still yet coming that we believe he said he was going to do it, so we are going to believe him. Are you with me? Awesome. Let's stand and let's pray together. So I encourage you to just take in a nice deep breath and exhale. One more time, inhale and exhale. And we're about to move into a time of worship and praise where we sing to the Lord. And right now, I just want you to pay attention to as we breathe in and out. The same is true at the God's presence is that near to us as we breathe. In him, we live and breathe and have our being. And so, Father, we just cry out to you now and say thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the reality we have more than just like a new spin on the Christmas story. Your story doesn't need a reboot. It's the same sacred, ancient story that we return to. And we recognize that it's because of that story that everything has changed for us. Of course, we've been forgiven of our sin and set free from the kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred into your family, the kingdom of light. We are your people. And the scripture says we've become a new creation. May those words never become cliche to us. May they never be something we just hear and let go in one ear and out the other. May we be like Mary, just filled with hopeful expectation of what you're doing and what you'll continue to do. So God, we want to approach you as ones who understand the great grace and power that comes from Jesus' advent. And we want to respond like Mary did with songs of hope, songs of praise. So we pray that as we sing, they would become like a uh, sweet-smelling offering or aroma to you, that as they rise to your ears, that you would say, there's my people. There's my people with full hearts, with hope in their hearts, with real faith in their hearts that what I've promised I'm gonna do. Would you be pleased? Would you be glorified? Would you be honored through our song? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Michael's gonna lead us in a few rhythms of worship. And also during this moment, we're gonna come forward to grab the bread and cup. And then together as one church, we'll take it together back in our seats. Uh, So the tables are open. Let's sing.